everybody, this is Brian. And this is Tony. From the Salty Language Podcast. Part of Podgods Network. Check us out at saltylanguage.com. We're a podcast about two old-time friends just sitting around and talking about whatever chaps our asses. It's true. Whether it be music, TV, comics, books. Yep, we have interviews at times. Get a hold of us at uh, Twitter at salty underscore language. And again, go to saltylanguage.com for all of our other ones. I guess uh, have a beer, you'll be fine. And stay salty. Sword of Omens, come to my hand. I, Lionel, command it. I also command that you keep listening to Adrian Has Issues. Welcome to Adrian Has Issues. I'm Adrian, and this is going to be so much fun. I, I really hope it is because it's the start of the new year. And what's great about the new year is I'm almost like a kid at Christmas, even though it's after Christmas, where every, you know I have like my wish list of people I'd love to have on a show. And I get to check off one of those spots because today's guest I'm a very huge fan of. He has a great podcast called How Is This Movie? Clearly, he's a movie buff. Uh, just recently, he's also a voice actor and just an all-around really cool dude who knows a lot more about movies than I do. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Dana Buckler. Dana, how's it going, man? Adrian, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. I actually found out about your show. I believe it was through Dark Angels and Pretty Freaks. They had talked about you on one episode, and I think they also repost a lot of podcasts that they like, and yours came up. And it was just a great title. It's like, how is this movie? And I'm thinking to myself... Wait, is it about you know movie reviews? Is it about just discussing them? But then listening to the show, you have this like almost encyclopedia level knowledge of movies. So I'm not sure if that's something you research or do you just know everything off of the cuff. But it's pretty remarkable. I'd like to say that what I do is a lot of it is research that I retain over the years. It's sort of when I when I learn something, I, I kind of it goes into a memory bank and it it, it just stays there. When it gets into more complex things to do with certain movies, yeah, there is a certain level of research that I do. I, I do want to tell you, though, I get asked a lot about the title, How Is This Movie? Because you've listened to the show. I don't really do that many movie reviews. So what's with the title? The title actually, and we can go a little more in depth uh, when we sort of talk about the sort of the history of the show, but the title is sort of a throwback or a callback to when I used to work at a video store. It was a mom and pop's video store. And everyone in the neighborhood I got to know over the time that I worked there. And inevitably, 10 times a day, I would be asked, how is this movie? Hey, Dana, how is this movie? And so that's sort of just a – it's sort of a throwback and a, and a sort of homage to what was honestly the best job I ever had that paid the worst amount of money I ever had. That seems to be how that works, isn't it? Like the best jobs are always like the worst paying. Like, um, for instance, I worked at a comic book store and one of the greatest times of my life, I only worked there for maybe like six months and I got paid like under the table, like five bucks. And most of my pay went home in like comic books. But yeah, like looking back, that's probably like one of the best times of my life. So I definitely feel you on that one. Absolutely. And I, I, looking back on it, like this would have been the late 90s 
when I was working at this video store. And so this okay. was bef- this was way before we had all this instant streaming and everything was available to us. So one of the perks of this job was the ability to take any movie I want at home at the end of the night and watch and take multiple ones home. And I was able over a, you know, a kind of a long period of time to watch pretty much everything in that video store. And this wasn't like Netflix where you can watch 10 minutes and if you're not interested, you know, you just turn it off. If I took a movie home, I watched the whole thing, good or bad. And so that's sort of how I built up a, a pretty strong base for a lot of different movies. Oh, that sounds like so much fun because I, I think about it. I mean, how many movies would you say average like a week you went through? Uh, okay, so that's funny you asked that because inside this video store, and this, I mean, when I say mom and pop's video store, I mean that I was given the keys to this video store a week after I started working there. I was, <laughs> it was just like Randall from Clerks. Uh, I didn't have sort of his personality, but I was in there by myself. And one of the interesting things about this video store was we had TVs in the four corners of the video store and a VCR behind the counter. And I was, I would just sit behind the counter and I would watch movies all day long. And I would work, you know, a 10 hour shift, no big deal. It was kind of under the table the same way you were at the comic book store. And what was interesting is when I would watch a movie behind the counter, it would play on the four TVs that were in the four corners. So the boss had one rule, and that was nothing over PG 13 to be played on this uh, VCR. I broke that rule right. the first first day I was there. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, You're, I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you off, but yeah, do you no. remember what that first movie was? Oh, absolutely. I knew exactly what it was. It was Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge. Uh, <laughs> as, oh, that's perfect. That's that's so perfect. If you've, you know, those who have listened to my show in the past know that I'm a, a big Nightmare on Elm Street aficionado, and, and I've had my dealings with those movies throughout the years. And again, I remember like sort of just walking down the aisles and went immediately to the horror movie section. And, oh, I haven't seen Freddy's Revenge in 10 years. I just went ahead and put it on. And, I mean, looking back on it, there were parents with their kids walking the aisles and everything. And I've got, you know, you, know, you look up on the TV and there's Freddy Krueger terrorizing teenagers, uh, you know, during a pool party. So, <laughs> needless to say, I got talked to a couple times. But to answer your question, I would probably watch – at least three movies a day while I was working there, and I would take two a night home with me. And I was pretty pretty consistent with that for a couple of years. And that's pretty remarkable because I always imagine it's one of those things that when you work at certain places, sometimes you almost become jaded to the experience. Like, I worked at a movie theater, and I tell you, once I left that job, like I couldn't even sit in a movie theater, and that hurt because I feel like all of my life lessons were taught in a movie theater. Like, that's basically where I was raised. Like it was almost like a summer home for me. So to have that experience where was there ever like a burnout rate where at some point you're just kind of like, I- I'm so tired of watching movies all day. You know, there really wasn't at that time. Now, again, I, I stress that we-, we live in a world where everything is so easily accessible. I never took for granted one day that I worked there, you know, the the opportunity I was getting to just sort of get caught up on all of these movies that as a kid, my my parents used to take, excuse me, my parents used to go uh, grocery shopping on Saturdays. And there was a, a video store next to the grocery store and I would go with them and, you know, I would spend 45 minutes in the video store as a kid looking at all these titles. This is, you know, the late eighties, early nineties and I'm just waiting for the opportunity that maybe someday I get to watch them. And, you know, six, seven years later, here I am watching all of these titles. So no, I never took it for granted. I never got burnt out. Surprisingly today though, 
Like I will spend an hour going through my Netflix and I can't find anything to watch. Uh, there's nothing that interests me. So, but back then, no, I didn't take it for granted. I, I, I embraced it. That's something that you mentioned, and it's almost sort of refreshing, and maybe this tells our age. Um, I mean, I'm not, I have no reason to lie. I mean, I'm 31 years old, but yet my father grew up, and he was a very big film buff. And so was my mom, too. But I think my dad, you know, approached it more from, like, the historian aspect because to this day, like, we'll go to the movies and we'll talk about, you know, directors and writers and such. But back then, um, we used to have a local chain. I think it was called – well, maybe I shouldn't say the name. But um, <laughs> it was a local chain, but it was that very classic style. And I think you mentioned it before – on one of your episodes where, you know, you used to go in, you used to pick the, the case off and this store didn't even have a computer. It was, you know, it was still like that thing. You had to like check it off, like in a booklet. Yep. That's it. No, that's exactly it. And it was just one of those things that I just, for some reason, I thought this exchange like, wait, you mean you just show up here to give you movies? And it's like, my dad's like, well, no, you have to pay for them. And I loved it because there used to be like a Ninja Turtles arcade cabinet in the store. And of course, I made the mistake of walking behind the, the section with the curtain. And I was like, well, sure. hold on. I was supposed to... <laughs> and I realized as I got older, I think about it. Now that you mention it, did choice ruin movies for me a little bit? I'm not sure if you ever had that issue. Like, well, you said it there, but I'm wondering if now having a choice between having this large selection because as the early 90s of course those stores closed down and you know places like blockbuster hollywood video popped up left and right and yet there was just mountains of movies well i'll give you a perfect example you you say does too much choice limit our decision and i live in florida i've lived here uh for about 16 years now the part of Florida that I live in is actually surprisingly hurricane free. Uh, in the, in the entire time that I've lived here, only one time in 2004 did we get sort of a bombardment of hurricane after hurricane after hurricane. And I say this because the power was knocked out at my house for four weeks. That's how long it took for them to get the power back on. And this is, this wow. is August, no air conditioning. I mean, it was miserable. But one of the things about it was we had no power. I had no way to watch TV. And I remember saying to myself, boy, if I ever get this TV back working again, if I ever get cable back on, I am going to be so thankful and so relaxed and so happy just to be able to watch something. I'd give anything to watch this copy of, you know, Gladiator that I had in my hand, you know, like anything, anything. <laughs> and then, you know, two weeks after the power goes back on and I'm flipping through the cable and I, I can't find anything to watch because I got too many channels. And yes, I so I, I honestly believe, and you know, I'm using that as an example, that too much choice limits our decision. It's pretty daunting. And maybe that's a personal thing. Because I know there are probably some people who are better equipped with that. But you're right. It's like, oh, there's so many things. And I've sat down just the other day, my girlfriend and I, we were going to watch something on Netflix and we spent most of the time cycling through the queues and discussing the movies we had seen versus the ones we hadn't seen and which ones look good and it's just like the idea of just sitting down to press play and watching a movie and i'm like man like this is such a first world problem to have <laughs> no, it re it really is it really is and and you know going back to to what you said about uh, uh, you know we're showing our age a little bit i'm 37 but you certainly remember a time when we would go to the video store and you would spend uh, a fair bit of time in the video store because you knew whatever movie you picked out, you were committed to it. You were going to right. watch it. And we don't live in that world now. Everything is uh, is very on demand. And again, I, there's, I almost have a 10-minute rule with Netflix, and I really fight hard to to sort of not use that rule. But 
you know, we live in a world where it's so easy for us to make, to change our mind on things like that. But you said it perfectly. I mean, first world problem, 100%. (laughs) But at the same time, as a movie lover, that's sort of just the world we decide to to live in because I I feel like we wouldn't have it any other way. No, no, you're absolutely right. And you know, if you've listened to my show, which I know you have, going to the movies, the going to the movie theater is a completely different animal altogether, and it's something I try to avoid as much as possible. So I, <laughs> I am, I am very thankful that we do have so many options at home. And I, you know, if, unless it's a big tentpole event film, a la you know Star Wars: The Force Awakens, it, it takes a lot to get me to go to the theater. So I am happy to be able to sit back at home and and, and have these off uh, movies, you know, available. Now, is that just one of those things where you have an issue like in our area where there's so many multiplexes and let's be honest, we don't need to dance around it. The clientele can be a little almost anti-movie at times where, you know, you go in to have this experience and, you know, your chair is being kicked at, you know, maybe people are gabbing and not even reacting, but just almost like they're not even there. Is it sort of that thing or is it just maybe over time you just realize it's not the same, like it's not worth it anymore? Well, Adrian, I'll tell you, it's a combination of a, of a number of things, including what you just said. Uh, when I was a teenager, and I stand by this, when my friends and I, when we went to the movies, we went to actually see the movie. I mean, it was like a big deal. It was a big deal to go see a movie. And we kept quiet. Now, there was no cell phones. Nobody was texting or any, anything like that. But I want to tell you that the problem runs much deeper than that for me. When I went to go see The Force Awakens, I got there, you know, very early, way before the showing started, and I'm standing in line to get a, a soda and a popcorn, and I had to abandon getting that soda and popcorn because they had one person to help 50 people in line. And I kept saying to myself, I don't get it. You know, this, and I'll say it, Regal Cinemas is, um, you know, they're wondering why their profits keep going down and down and down. It's just a miserable experience for me, nine times out of ten, to go see the movies. Now, thankfully, when I saw, you know, The the Force Awakens the first time, you know, with the exception of an incident I had before, you know, right when the movie started, everybody that was in the theater there was extremely respectful and, you know, was there to see Star Wars. Right. And that happens, too, because I know Regal's big out here where my girlfriend is, but uh, back home, uh, I think it's AMC. And, well, I don't care if they really hear this because um, I don't work for them anymore, not for well, nearly a decade. But you're right. And the theater we went to, it was a 10 o'clock show on a Saturday night. This is, of course, opening weekend of Star Wars. Now, whether it's the Thursday or Friday or Saturday, it's opening weekend. This is a big deal. And while it wasn't a massive crowd, it was a sizable crowd. And yet they were closing down, like, because there's about two concession stands. As a matter of fact, there's a third. All except for one were closed, and yet they had nothing there. And I'm just kind of like, whether this is the first show of the day or the last show of the day, you guys should be well-stocked and well-prepared to meet the demand. Because, again, this is Star Wars. This is a very big movie. Why wouldn't you then make sure that you had all your bases covered? And thankfully, we got there almost like an hour early because we expected there to be a big issue. But yeah, you're right. It's like the larger chains almost don't know how to treat the moviegoers. And it's not even just the annoying ones. It's just the the people there. It's one of those things where, like, I get the fact that they have to charge as much as they do for the concessions. I understand that. Like, I'm okay. Like, honestly, it's part of the experience, and I'm okay with that. And and I know that they make pennies on the dollar for every movie theater ticket that they sell. So that's why they have to charge the uh, you know absorbent amount of prices that they charge. 
So my question is, why are they not doing a much better job to bring in more of that revenue? Because, you know, I obviously, you lost, but $15 for me, and I'm just one person, and I know I'm not the only person that, you know, abandoned the line just to say, you know what, forget it, I'm done, I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to get anything. So, I mean, that's just it. But to me, if you were to, if I was to pinpoint, and I, I can, I'm sorry, I can get past all of that, but the movie theater etiquette that we're experiencing now is to the point where, like I said, it, it takes an awful lot to get me there. I, I, I'm not afraid. I shouldn't say I'm not afraid because in this day and age, you really should be cautious. But I've been known to to actually be that person in the theater to stand up and, and, and tell somebody, hey, you know what? Not now. This is not the opportunity. This is not the time. You know, please stop talking or, or whatever. But in this day and age, it's almost like it's better you don't say anything, especially in, you know, here in Florida. We've already had some incidents only an hour down the road from where I live. So, oh man, that's so unfortunate. And it's a shame because you grew up in a theater. I grew up in a theater and it's this experience that you just can't get anywhere else. And yes, not every movie is necessarily one that you need to see in theaters, but for a tent pole or just there are some films that just need it especially like in the case of Star Wars. But I was hoping in a way that maybe that would spur the renaissance of, I don't want to call them independent necessarily, but maybe just the smaller theaters. I mean, we're fortunate where I live. Um, We have an art house theater like five minutes from where I live. Granted, they're not necessarily showing Star Wars there, but yet it's a smaller theater and it's much more intimate. There's not a lot of kids there. I mean, it's mostly a lot of older crowds and especially come like awards time where you really get you know, your really big film buffs. And I realize and I sit down in these theaters and I'm like, everybody's paying attention. Nobody's, you know, gabbing on their phones or Mr. Rappers or everybody's basically there to see this movie. And there's just something about that. And I don't mean to sound elitist about it, but yet somehow they've managed to tap into what the multiplex has managed to avoid, or I'm sorry, or managed to just kind of ignore. It's the movie experience is still there. It's just weird that for whatever reason, they can't seem to get it together. You know, and you're absolutely right. My mother lives in uh, Sarasota, Florida, which is about two and a half hours south of me. And they have a in small independent theater called the, the Burns Court Cinema there. If anybody in Sarasota is listening, the Burns Court Cinema, it's a four screen cinema that only shows art house and indie films. And I have been there. I can't even tell you how many times I've been there. And every experience has been flawless. Because, like you said, the, the, you know, the, the people that go there, they're there to watch the movie. They carry themselves with the type of etiquette you'd expect at a Broadway show. Try talking or, or pulling out a cell phone at a Broadway show and watch what happens. <laughs> it's the worst. And it's like, you never want to be that guy or that woman. And just, you know, accidents happen, but man, is it embarrassing. No, and I agree with you. But there is a theater chain. Uh, we I, I've talked about this in an earlier episode called the Alamo Draft House, And I'm not sure if they're around where you're at i know that they're springing up in big cities all around the country we have one in yonkers new york okay they're extremely strict on their theater policies i mean they have people that are in the theater to watch if you're if you're flagrantly talking or you pull out your cell phone and text i mean they're going to ask you to leave and uh, i i say bravo to them for for doing that you know i wish more theaters i think i think they would get more theaters would get more customers if they instituted that type of policy, because here I am, I should be their target audience. Okay. I'm in my thirties. I do a show about movies. Uh, in my peak time, I was going to two to three movies a week in the theater. They should be courting someone like myself or, or, or anybody that's sort of like a movie aficionado and a movie junkie and saying, what's it going to take to get you to come to the theater? 
I don't even want to go. I've been three times this year. I mean, they're doing something wrong. Sorry, man. I didn't mean to get all upset there. <laughs> just <laughs> No, I agree. And it's something that I didn't realize just how troubling it is. Because, again, I love going to the movies still. At the same time, whereas a larger chain has failed, it's great that, you know, another chain has succeeded. And maybe they don't necessarily have the reach that they do. I actually went to the Alamo Draft House, and you'll laugh, but um, my best friends and I were very big fans of, what's the Eli Roth movie, Cabin Fever? Sure, yeah. The comedian Doug Benson, he does this thing called the Benson Interruption, where basically he and a couple of other comedians will go to a movie theater for a special screening. They'll sit in the front row, and it's basically a live Mystery Science Theater 3000 type experience where they'll riff on a movie as it's playing. And you all get to watch it together and experience it. And it's it's quite a riot. See, me, that sounds amazing. So I'd, I would be all over that. If he's ever in your area, because I know he does a lot of touring, like I would definitely check that out. But the Draft House, they also do things like they'll do like sing-along nights or they'll show retro films. And, you know, you've been to like the Draft House. There's, you know, obviously there's beer there. There's, you know, there's dining experience. And again, it's strictly enforced. And there's also an age thing, which I know some people feel a little bit differently about. But yet, I think it's what? I think 18 over or 21 or older, unless it's like a special kids night. And I'm not saying every theater needs to be that, though. But I'm like, man, like, God, I wish this had come up, you know, earlier in life because it's an experience. And I think that's the thing that people probably in this day and age don't realize that movie going experiences should be that an experience. And yes, you are paying a lot of money. But if your service is good and if the movie quality is good and everything else is good, people, I think, would be willing to pay a little bit extra just to have that. I know I would be. I've said this uh, in, in past conversations I don't mind paying the ticket prices. I don't mind paying the concession prices. I just want my experience. Like, There's something to be said about going to the movies. To me, going to the movies, especially as a child, it was a magical experience. It was you being transported into whatever world was being shown on screen. And at 37 years old, I still want to get that feeling when I go to the movies. And, and thankfully, I, again, I'm happy to report, I got that with the new Star Wars movie, but we'll get to that in a little bit. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I'm almost going to just talk about it now because that was <laughs> that that was a it was an it was an amazing time. But one thing I will say, though, what I really like about your show is you have this really great knack at storytelling. And I know you don't necessarily do it every episode because some of it may be a little bit more information based as far as the movies themselves. Mm -hmm. But you do tell like these really fantastic stories because earlier you mentioned uh, your Star Wars story where someone interrupted the beginning of the film. And if I'm not mistaken, that was you had an argument about the seat. Well, well sure. I'll, I'll tell you real quickly because that, that story doesn't take too long to tell. I, I'm really somewhat neurotic when it comes to, to going to the movies. And there's, there's a particular set of uh, seats when you go into like the big theater, like the big auditoriums. When you walk up the stairs, there's the main theater, and then on the other side is a row, a row of two seats. And I've nicknamed them the twosies. And that's where I will sit most times, just because for whatever reason, I, 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 I you know, I, I just like to have that elbow space. And, you know, I sort of like to, you know, kind of be by myself if I'm watching a movie by myself. I agree. So I purposely went to The Force Awakens. I purposely purchased a ticket for an auditorium that I knew would have the twosies. And, you know, I got there as early as possible. And, and again, I'm sure the experience was the same for you. But when we got into, I got into the theater an hour before the movie started and the place was almost full. 
like everybody was had the same idea, you know, get to the theater, get to the theater. And I looked and I was looking at the row of twosies and there was only one like open twosie left. So I grabbed it. Now, now here's here's another funny little part about that is I was okay with an hour. I was going to be there for an hour, no problem, because I was just going to watch something on Netflix. Right. Problem is, I I left my phone in my car. Oh no! So I was literally, I was literally just going to have to sit there for an hour. <laughs> and if if you've ever just been like eagerly anticipating something, um, that hour felt like three hours. And I'm sure a lot of people <laughs> understand what I mean. And I remember at one point, I and I mentioned this in the story. At one point, I, I turned around and asked the guy. Uh, do you know what time it is? And I, I swear to you, he was going to say 9.30 or 9.45, and he said 9.15. And oh. I was like, 9.15? I was like, 9.15, or excuse me, 8.15, because it was a 9 o'clock showing. But anyway, so like 15 minutes had passed. <laughs> so, and what I felt really bad about as we got closer and closer to the start of the movie is I looked around the theater, and there were not two seats together anywhere. Oh, and there I were hate groups that so much. Oh, I'm telling you, there were groups of three and four and families, you know, where it was the mother, the father, you know, the four children coming in and the look of just pure disappointment on their face. And I'm not making fun. Like, I I felt terrible for them because all of a sudden it was like they had to place their kids. There's an empty seat there. There's an empty seat there. And I guess we're going to sit over here. I used to do that at one point, but I'm like, you know what? No more. I literally tell people, look, I have a group here. I see there's three separate seats. If no one's waiting for them, y'all got to just move down. Like, I, sure. <laughs> and thankfully, there haven't been any incidents, but maybe it's not the best approach to kind of, you know, get loud with them. But I'm like, look, there's no reason for these empty seats. The thing that got me was like, who's showing up to the Star Wars movie five minutes on opening day and expecting to, that, you know, this 10 people you showed up with are going to be able to sit down? So, I mean, like, you got to plan ahead a little bit for that. So, what happens is that the movie starts. I still have my empty seat next to me. I've got my bag of popcorn. It's right next to me. I've got my soda. I'm I'm all in, Adrian. I'm comfortable. I The movies start, getting ready to start. We're going through the trailers. You know, I'm, I'm watching the trailers. Everything's great. I'm still seeing people sporadically come in from time to time. It's dark enough there to, to nobody can see me. Like, the lights are down. Nobody sees that there's pristine, empty seat right next to me. And then... The Lucasfilm logo comes on the screen, and I'm telling you, my eyes welled up a little bit. I was so excited for this movie to start. My eyes welled up, and then it says, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And then all of a sudden, the Star Wars logo comes on the screen, and bam, there's a woman standing right in front of me. Oh, no. And, and she goes, and she goes, I mean, when I say start standing right in front of me, I mean completely a foot from me, blocking my view. I can't see the screen. And the Star Wars crawl is happening. And I'm shifting to the right and I'm shifting to the left. And she goes, excuse me, is that seat taken? Is that seat taken? And I said, give me, give me just a second. What's the crawl say? What does the crawl say? And I can't read it. And she, and she, <laughs> sna- and she snapped at me. She goes, she goes, excuse me. I said, is that seat taken? Now, I'm telling you, Adrian, I, I, I really try to be the nicest person in the world. And, and I work in the service industry. I work with people all day long, but I've never had somebody snap at me like that. And so I just looked up at her and I said, why, yes, it is. My girlfriend's <laughs> going to be here any minute. And I went there by myself. And, I, and then I said, but you're in luck because I see a seat right over there. And I pointed to the only empty seat I saw, which, which was in the very front 
row. I mean, this is the type of thing where you're going to have some serious neck pain by the time this movie's <laughs> over with. Dana, that is ruthless, man. That is straight ruthless. But I'm I'm proud. That's the first viewing, right? Absolutely. I, and I was. Oh, here's the thing. Here's the thing, Adrian. I had every intention of saying, "Please let me move my stuff out of the way." This is Star Wars. I'm going to make an exception. There's no problem here. But when she yelled at me, I was just like, I just something shifted in me. I was like, "What?" You know, and that's just it. You know, if you're always going to get farther in life if you're nice to people, I say. I agree. And and so, and so, yeah. So that was kind of my uh, my my experience. Now, truth be known, I've seen the movie a few times since then. So I've actually read the crawl and everything is good. Right, but it's that it's that first moment because um when I saw it, I and this is something that I didn't really realize I missed until then. And as much as I love that they're still doing the movies and you know Disney is now taking Star Wars, brought it back, but one thing I do miss is the 20th Century Fox fanfare. Uh yeah. And yeah. the one reason why I missed that is because I'll I'll take it this way. Growing up, a lot of movie buffs, and my mom was a very big fan of like classic Hollywood studio bumpers, whatever you want to call them. They held weight because the studio bumpers, it's like you knew if a certain studio was producing a movie, you were kind of in for a good time. Absolutely. For those that have listened to the the two-part Star Wars podcast that I just released, um, if you listen to part one, I play the 20th Century Fox bumper. If you listen to part two, which is talking about The Force Awakens, I don't play that bumper. And so I don't know if anybody picked up on that or not. No, I didn't get a chance to um, listen to part two yet. I was actually going to do it today, but I was like, oh, shoot, I got to get ready for the show. But um, no, that's pretty interesting. That was 100% intentional uh, because exactly what we just talked about, like the 20th Century Fox bumper is not there anymore. And so I was kind of making a sort of a a subconscious point there to, to say, yes, I recognize that I missed the bumper as well. Yeah, because, and especially when it comes to Star Wars, and as much as we bash the prequels, I'm not going to lie. I mean, we could be here all day talking about how not great they were, but I did hear the first part when you tell the story about um, when you went to go see episode one. And it's like, I laughed with you, I got angry, and part of me even got sad. (laughs) Because the the story, I love that part where, you know, at the end, like your postscript or you're, you know, watching dishes, like fucking Jar Jar Binks. (laughs) It was just such a great story. But I remember being in that theater, I was in, I think, eighth grade in 1999, and hearing that 20th Century Fox, I'm like, I'm seeing a new Star Wars movie. That bumper was there to kind of get you ready for when, you know, that horn, that blast, or the music comes in, you see the logo. Not having it this time, I wasn't paying attention because my girlfriend and I were just kind of looking at it like, oh, this is it. We're seeing this movie. Next, you know, I see Lucasfilm, and then a long time ago, and like I wasn't paying attention because I didn't hear the fanfare. Next, you know, the music just starts. And like I just cocked my head back to the screen, and I'm saying, wait, this is happening. Star Wars is happening. Like episode seven, the movie I've been waiting for longer than the prequels is happening right in front of my face. I couldn't help it. Like the tears just came down. I've watched so many dramas, so many like horrible scenes. I've never welled up or damn near cried as much as I did seeing Force Awakens. And I'm not even going to lie, but it was just not having that bumper was I I wasn't prepared for it. But you got to read the crawl, right? The yeah. first time. Oh, thankfully yeah. no one was sitting in front of me. Matter <laughs> of fact, I think I was annoying other people because there was just I was reacting too much to certain things, like you know, seeing the Millennium Falcon for the first time and thankfully the crowd was really good, so when characters popped on the screen, you know, they're clapping and cheering. So thankfully there was no one jumping up in front of me asking if the seat was taken. 
you know what was interesting, and just a quick spoiler alert if anybody hasn't seen The Force Awaken, and, and I'm going to go back and talk about The Crawl just for a second. I had no idea what The Crawl said. So an hour and a half into this movie, I'm still going, where's Luke Skywalker at? <laughs> what? When's he kind of you know make his appearance? Okay, they, I understand they have a map for him, but I had no idea that the very first thing the crawl says is Luke Skywalker has vanished. I completely missed that, and that that honestly that impacted my viewing just a little bit. Oh, see, I feel like it almost be a positive. My thing was this though: I just was not expecting it to be the first line of the crawl. I thought it was going to be like, "Hey, welcome back, guys," or you know, "Hey, you know, things are okay, but they're still evil lurking." I didn't realize Luke Skywalker is missing, and I'm like, "What the hell?" Because I'm thinking to myself, this movie takes place 30 years after Return of the Jedi, or roughly 30 years. But I'm like, wait a minute, why would he be missing? Why wouldn't he just be with everybody else? Wasn't he just with them? And he realized, oh, wait a minute, that's a whole three decades ago. Yep, that's exactly, <laughs> yep, you're exactly right. So, uh, But I feel like the poster unfortunately spoiled that a little bit because I realized he's not on it. And once I saw that poster, I'm like, oh, let me guess, this is going to be a thing, isn't it? Well, one of the things for me about that was... Listen, I will say this. I'll say this, and I, and, and I said this just in my most recent episode, that I thought the movie was was so enjoyable that I had to actually remind myself a couple times, oh, yes, this whole thing is about finding Luke Skywalker. I wonder when he's going to make his appearance in the movie, because I was, I was just thoroughly enjoying the movie that much. Right. Um, I, I will be the first to tell you that I expected to see him mid-movie. By the time we got to the very end of the movie, and I was like, he's not going to be in this, or they're going to show him for just a moment. I... I was sort of like, oh, man, because the thing is this, we we know the original trilogy story. Yes. We know what happens in Empire. So when we watch Return of the Jedi, everything sort of wraps up. We have one episode in this new trilogy to work with right now. And so as much as I loved it, I'm frustrated just because I want the whole story. I, I just want to know how it ends. And that's such a good and bad thing with storytelling. I'm all about, you know, playing a long game and reading a story where you're not sure where it's going to go, but you've been waiting so long for this. And, oh, my gosh, like, you know, Abrams and the rest of the crew, like, they got us because they gave us a movie that's wonderful, but completely mysterious that doesn't hand feed you everything. And now you're left waiting. It's like, well, wait, two years, two years is that's too long only to realize it's like, A, it's closer towards like a year and a half. And B, it used to be longer than that for like the other movies, but yet it's so good. You want to know more. You want to know everything. You want to hang out with everybody and get into their backstories. I mean, think about this for a second. In 1980, when you saw Empire Strikes Back, it was a full three years before right. you got to find out the resolution of what happened with Luke and Han Solo and, and everybody. So, I mean, you know, we're, we're looking at May of 2017 for episode eight. And that's, you know, that's a year and a half from now. So, you know, I think we'll be okay. Plus, we get another, we get another Star Wars movie this December. So, oh, I that's mean, right, with Rogue One. Yeah, so, I mean, that's good. I'm excited. I'm, well, I'm good. excited, too. But, no, I'm saying that now... That's another year that I'm practically going to have to avoid spoilers. And with Rogue One, I'm not necessarily worried about spoilers too much because, I mean, we kind of already know what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I think they're going to succeed in their plans. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the only thing is maybe a character we like may die as they steal the plans or what have you. But I tell you, now that Star Wars Frenzy is in full effect everybody's going to be fishing for information. And as someone who lives on the internet, this is a dangerous time for me to be around. Uh, no, I understand. I put, I put myself into a self-imposed Star Wars blackout. And um, besides watching that very first teaser trailer that came out in, 
uh, November of 2014, I purposely didn't watch any of the trailers leading up to The Force Awakens. That was probably one of the more challenging things that I've ever done before. I mean, there were, there were times I almost broke down. You know, I literally opened up the YouTube page to watch a trailer. So I was reading today on Facebook that, you know, uh, the Avengers Infinity Wars or whatever is going to tie the Guardians of the Galaxy universe together in Zogonos. And I'm reading this going, well, thanks for spoiling that for me. You know, thank <laughs> I mean, I mean, back in the day, it would have been, you know, I, I kind of like the idea of not knowing. And, and believe me, I didn't know anything about the Star Wars, Star Wars, The Force Awakens. I mean, I knew right. a little bit, but I didn't know anything. I, so I went back and watched the trailer after watching the movie. And I was like, oh, man, that trailer really gives away a lot when it really doesn't. <laughs> Just because I'd, when I, I'd seen the movie already. So that's the one thing I do hate. I wanted to take the easy way out and blame, like, let's say Disney. Or Disney's marketing department, because one thing Disney's very good at is marketing. I oh, mean, yeah. the Marvel movies were very successful prior to Disney's acquisition, but yet once they got hold of it, now it's like everybody knows who the Avengers are. Even like the cut rate characters, like let's say Ant Man, you know, he's almost like a, he's close to being a household name himself in, in his own right. But I wonder if that's a case of moviegoers not moviegoers or just i guess fans um, because with the internet everybody has access everybody leaks things and so many websites are like look what's going to get people reading our site so why don't we just give them quote unquote exclusive information and it's like there's just this glut of it and you're right especially with like let's say the comic book movies now okay you know what let's rephrase that a little bit because comic book movies unfortunately i think unlike star wars don't have the ability to kind of just let the stories exist because in a way you almost know how they're going to play play out. Sure. No. Okay. That makes sense. No, I, I, I'll buy I'll buy that. Absolutely. As much as I love them because I'm diehard, you know, Marvel guy and as much as I love the Avengers and as much as I'm trying not to spoil myself on each movie, it's to the point now where since we already kind of know the basis of what's happening, it's less surprise and more of, I just want to see if what I think is going to match up to what they're going to do. Oh, and that's the thing. And you're absolutely right. And here's here's an issue. Let me, I pose a question to you. Okay. Okay. If Disney didn't release a single trailer or a single screenshot for Star Wars Rogue One, would you still see the movie? The Star Wars, because I'm sorry, yeah. as much as the prequel sucked, you told me there was an episode one, two, and three. My tickets are already bought. Yeah. So when it comes to Rogue One... If they don't release a trailer or anything for that, you're still going to see the movie. Hell yeah. I mean, that I was saying to some friends, I was like, they don't even need to make trailers for – Marvel doesn't even need to make trailers anymore. Disney doesn't need to make trailers anymore. They're, they're, they've got such an installed you know, base that you – know, why give so much away? You know, and why it, even if even if it, a lot of this is clickbait, you know, click on this article for exclusives. Right. Why not be more tight lipped about it? Because I think it's you're only hurting the the people that love your product that much more. Because it's it's imagine that thrill of just being shocked and surprised in the theater. I mean, we get less and less of that every every year. It seems like I definitely agree to that, and I actually had this rant um a while ago. Unfortunately, you know, it sounds cliche to say it though, but studios are very afraid to take risks and they're very afraid to take a hit. And I know they're also almost afraid that there's going to be a group of people, like I guess demographic wise, that they're going to miss out on. So of course, you release a trailer that's a too long and b gives you so much because depending on when you see a trailer and how, 
And even almost what time of day, the dynamic completely changes. Like, I can't tell you how many movies I've seen trailers of where at five o'clock um, in the day, it was a drama, but like four hours earlier than that, the same trailer was a comedy. You know, they're <laughs> trying so hard to hit, you know, every key demographic, but, you know, those fan bases, I think, were already locked in. I'm going to give you a perfect example. And if you had told me two years ago, I'd be telling you what I'm about to say. I wouldn't have believed it. But after seeing the Batman v Superman trailer, the the the, the latest one they came out with, mm-hmm. this is not a movie that I'm going to run to the theater to go see. Absolutely not. This is this is a movie that I'm going to wait until it comes out on you know VOD and you know I, you know that's it because talk about and this is just my opinion and I you know I don't want everyone to think that I all I do is gripe about things because that's not the case. I love movies, but I also love the, the, the you know the not knowing at the end of that trailer. You see a scene with Wonder Woman, Batman, and Superman. And Batman looks at, you know, looks at Superman and says, you know, is she with you? And I thought she was with you and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, so I guess they're getting along now. So you've already basically showed me that, you know, yeah, it's Batman v Superman. But by the end of the movie, that we're all friends again, which we all kind of knew that was going to happen. Yeah. But wait, a, wait that, to me, that really let me down. That was a big letdown. I was like, I can't believe they did that. I would have loved to have seen this tension carried over into a couple other movies. Absolutely. And that's something that I really do feel that that last trailer, because, all right, Disney's already got the one-two punch of having two very successful franchises, Star Wars and the Marvel movies. A week prior to that, Marvel just released what was the first trailer for um, Captain America Civil War. Being a fan, of course, I am biased. So, again, obviously, this is my opinion, and this doesn't reflect everybody's, but... I watched that trailer with the same amount of hype. Well, not the same amount, but nearly equal level as I did for, let's say, Star Wars The Force Awakens because that movie features characters who are debuting for the first time and I'm a very big fan of. So it was cool seeing that trailer. And it's like, oh, man, like it's set up perfectly. And I said to myself after watching this trailer because it was a te- it's a long teaser, but it's a teaser. So I really don't know necessarily what's going to be happening. And I said to myself, nope, that's it. I don't really need to know anything else about this movie because they've already got me. A week later, all of a sudden, I felt like they needed to play catch up and have the sort of Me Too attitude where Warner Brothers is like, wait a minute. We, too, have a trailer for our movie. But yet they just released a trailer not too long ago for Batman versus Superman. And one of the common complaints of this new one is that a it does give so much away. And it's also hastily cobbled together because they guess they felt that they needed to sort of match wits with them when they really didn't. No, no, you're absolutely right. Um, again, this goes back to what what we were saying that you know, less is more. I mean, we're we're okay. You don't have to give us, you know, you don't have to. Let's uh, say, let me say it like this: you don't have to hold our hand through the entire trailer. Like we're right. we're, we're we're gonna go see these movies. Like it's 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 inevitable. We're going to see them. I personally feel that a trailer should not be longer than maybe a minute, maybe minute thirty at the most. Sure. Yeah, and especially if it's a teaser, like that definitely should not be any longer than a minute. No, and my hats off to J.J. Abrams and, and Disney because that first Star Wars uh, teaser that they released, I mean, that was perfect. That was a minute long, and we got nothing except you know a, a great shot of the Millennium Falcon. That was enough for me to say, I don't okay, I don't want to see anything else. Yeah, this is good. It, it was you, just, you, you um, got me. 
<laughs> in that trailer, I ran around my room and I like I ran to my sister was working and like she, she works from home and she was at her computer and I was like, "Did you see the Star Wars?" Trailer? Like, shut up, I'm working. I'm like, oh my bad, sorry, but I was just so excited. <laughs> I need to tell somebody, and it's just it was almost like that scene from Network, but instead of me, you know, stick my head out the window screaming, "I'm mad as hell," but I was like, "Did it ever? <laughs> did you all see the Star Wars trailer?" And I'm like, "And that's all you needed." But what was that movie that just that came out that bombed Harpy? Was it Gem and Holograms? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The trailer for that movie, I kid you not, was I think over three minutes long. I think that trailer pretty, uh, and I'm I'm saying that I don't even know if I necessarily saw the same trailer we're talking about. Yeah, I don't think I actually saw that one because I remember watching that trailer, going, "Well, I don't know what this is." And I remember Jim and the Holograms, the cartoon from when I was a kid, because the you know the, the there was a girl that lived across the street from me. She was my age, and that was all her and her friends ever. You know, they they lived to watch Jim and the Holograms after school. And I remember watching this trailer for this movie going, I don't know what this is. So (laughs) I bring it up, though, because it's that example of a trailer being way too long. And it basically was like a Cliff Notes version of the movie. And I'm like, well, I just saw this. I'm like, why would I need to go see it in theaters? And I don't know. Like, I definitely agree with the less is more. And I'm not trying to gripe because, again, I love movies and I'm definitely going to go see these. But I don't know. I think there's just a weird arms race going on. Let me give you a funny little uh, quick little story here, because I'm. I agree with you that trailers are too long. And I was I was adamantly talking about this with someone about 6 months ago. And I said I said it's just ridiculous how tra- how how long trailers have gotten and how much they're giving away. I said, you know, back in the day trailers gave nothing away. Watch the Jaws trailer and you'll see what I mean. Uh, like a day later, my buddy texts me uh, a YouTube link and he's like, I think you need to watch this Jaws trailer because it's three minutes and 40, three minutes and 40 seconds long and it covers the entire movie, first, second, and third act. And I was just, I remember watching the trailer going, Oh, so this is not a new practice. This has been really? going on for a long time. Oh, yeah. I, I had to eat my words there because I was just watched the Jaws trailer because that's my favorite movie. And clearly, I hadn't watched the Jaws trailer in quite some time. <laughs> that's funny you should mention that because that was one of the first ever episodes I listened to your show, uh, The Jaws. Uh, sorry. And what's great about How Is This Movie is I love when you sort of do, like, I guess you cover an entire franchise as opposed to just the one movie because The Jaws episode... That story is so, again, part of my language, but it's so batshit insane how the sequels got made and the steps that, you know, they took to make them. And it's just, I never would have believed that story to be real if I didn't, you know, follow up with it after listening to the show. And I was just like, man, like, do you sometimes when you research this stuff or when you find things out, do you then kind of just sit back and go, man, like it's you wonder how this stuff even gets, you know, put the film in the first place. I mean, the Jaws is a perfect example because I did an episode. I did actually did two episodes on Jaws. I did one episode devoted solely to the 1975 film, which is to this day still my my favorite film. I, I think it's a near perfect film, even though the shark looks fake. <laughs> and it wasn't until a year later that I did a follow up to that, which was I I did the episode. It was called Jaws: The Revenge, but it really covered Jaws two, three, and four. And I was only going to talk just a little bit about two and three. And then I just started digging more and more into it and into what it, I I couldn't believe what I was finding out. And it was, you know, obviously I got a smile, you know, you know, ear to ear grin when I was started to read research. I said, this is going to be great. This is really real. And so I had to go find different research, you know, different, different areas to find out if what I'm reading was actually true. I'm like, this, (laughs) this can't really be the case. 
they weren't really going to make Jaws 3 like Airplane and Naked Gun. Yes, they really were. They were going to make it a spoof movie called Jaws 3 People Zero. And the first scene in that movie was going to have the author, Peter Benchley, who you know who wrote the book Jaws, uh, be attacked by a shark in his swimming pool. And that was going to sort of set the tone for the rest of the movie. And it was going to turn out that the, the that aliens were controlling the shark. And, and Steven Spielberg went into Sid Sheinberg, who was the head of MCA Universal at the time. He went into his office and said, and pardon my language here. It's okay to use language? Absolutely. Okay. He <laughs> yeah, walked, I'll have he, a potty mouth. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, he walked. He walked into Sid Sheinberg's office and he said, "I hear that you, you know, this. If this Jaws movie gets made, I am walking out of my contract with Universal. I, uh, he's, he's basically, if this fucking thing gets made, I'm done at Universal. Okay. And so, you know, it took Steven Spielberg going to the head of Universal saying, "This is a really, really bad idea for them to kind of pull the plug on it and decide to." I mean, it was inevitable they were going to make a third Jaws film because Jaws 2 had made enough money to warrant it, but right. they made the decision to, to tell a more serious story, and thus we get Jaws set at SeaWorld in Orlando, which, by the way, Orlando is uh, 40 miles from the ocean. Just a little fun fact. You know, <laughs> I've been there. I live... I, 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 that is, I would love to see somebody's review of that movie with just that line, because I think that says everything you need to know about the movie. That, that's all you need to know. Yes, or, Orlando is 40 miles from the ocean. <laughs> when Steven Spielberg had dropped off that project, why would they, and I get it, you know, when you have a studio, you have a brand and your brand is strong. Obviously, you want to keep, you know, monetizing that brand. And again, it's business. But at the same time, I'm just like, how did they ever think this was going to work? It, it was just so hilariously baffling to me. Well, it becomes a numbers game. It really does. It becomes simply, what does it cost to make the movie? What kind of returns can we expect? Jaws 2, for all intents and purposes, was a very successful movie. It was one of the highest grossing films of 1978. It made a lot of money. It didn't make Jaw, the original Jaws money, but it made a lot of money. So... You know, what happens is when they do Jaws 3, it's like, you know, we're going to lower the budget just a little bit. And if we can make, you know, uh, three times our budget, that's a success. And then when they, by the time they get to Jaws the Revenge, well, that movie just barely made its budget worldwide. And that was it. It, it was – and but not only that, it, it destroyed the franchise. And there should have never been a franchise, in my opinion. I agree. But there's a certain charm to Jaws the Revenge. That it's just this weird flash in the pan of so many bad ideas that came together to make this movie that it almost makes it watchable. Like, I don't know what it is. And I know there's a lot of purists right now who are probably about to, like, send me, like, hate mail or just, like, tweet at me angrily. But there's just something I love about that movie because nothing about it makes sense. You know, interestingly, I saw that movie in the theater as a nine-year-old. That movie came out in 87 and I remember my dad taking myself and a couple of my friends to go see that movie. And I, I mean, as a nine-year-old, I loved the movie. I thought it was fantastic. You know, obviously looking back uh, almost 20 years later, it, you're right. It, it does fall into that it's so bad, it's good category. But the problem is that the, the so bad, it's good parts are, are are few and far between. Like anytime the shark is on screen – the movie's kind of delightful in a way because it's this the most absurd looking shark and some of the most absurd situations <laughs> you've ever seen. Uh, what what gets me is the is the you know quasi love story be between Michael Caine and uh, 
I want to say Ellen Brody, but that's not her name. <laughs> I can't. I can't even think of her name right now. This is what's going through my mind. Yeah, I think we can figure it out at some point. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So you know, you know, instead of this is this crazy love story that's going on behind the scenes, just give us more. Give us more shark. Give us more shark. There was another podcast that I listened to called We Hate Movies, which uh, a big fan of that show, and they did a terrific episode on Jaws: The Revenge, and they made a point that I didn't realize until they brought it up is that in the fourth Jaws movie, only two people die. The only two people are attacked by the shark. Really? I mean, by the time you, you get you get the opening scene where Sean is attacked, and right. then you get the lady on the banana boat. And then, you, you know, some people will say that Mario Van Peebles' character, Jake, dies. But if you watch the uh, extended cut, he actually survives. So in a movie... That's the fourth film in a Jaws franchise, and you only have two people killed by the shark. In part three, I mean, your people are getting murdered left and right. Oh, that's why I get, yeah, that's why I love part three more than part four is because you're actually seeing shark attacks. Yeah, but if think about it, there's only two people are killed in the, what should be the you know it should be a. I mean, listen, the Friday the Thirteenth films when they started getting into four, five, six, and seven, I mean, all bets were off. I mean, you're supposed <laughs> to up, you're supposed to up the Bonnie count. Not not lower it. They lowered it less than the original Jaws. That's something I never actually paid attention to. Great. Now I'm not going to be able to like unthink that. But wow, I wonder if there was any significance to that, or was it just at that point they're like it costs too much to to have people attacked by sharks? Well, well, I think what Joseph Sargent did, and he the director, he was not only was he, was he the director, but he was also the producer. He was the writer. Sid Sheinberg basically told him, listen. Make this movie. It's yours. Here, here's the money you have to work with. Here's your budget. You can produce it. You can write it. You can direct it. You can cast it. You can do everything you want. It's, it's, your, it's your baby. What Joseph Sargent didn't really know was that if you know this movie flopped and it was a failure, it was all going to fall on his shoulders. So what Sargent did was instead of like upping the body count and upping you know, you know, more gore and more scares – what he did was he tried to go back to that formula of the original Jaws and make it about the characters. If right. you look at it, it's it's really more about the characters. It's a, it's about Ellen Brody. It's about Michael Brody. It's about Ellen dealing with the death of her son and you know the emotional trauma that she's suffering. And and it's not a it's not a movie about a, a killer shark anymore. It's about a family struggle and coping with the loss of a family member. And that's what Joseph Sargent tried to do. If you watch the movie, and it's obviously. It didn't work. It failed miserably, and it it really affected Joseph Sargent's career. He never recovered from that. See, and that's the kind of stuff that I love about how is this movie. I mean, shoot. <laughs> it's just, oh, then, of course, Back to the Future. I mean, the Dirty Harry movies. Oh, the Die Hard episodes. I mean, when you did the ones where, you, I guess, you did, like, the back-to-back. Those are really yeah. cool because I didn't know about Die Hard of the Vengeance where the writer um, was was under investigation because of uh, his knowledge of the the Federal Reserve. Absolutely. He was writing it. The, the writer wrote a script. Uh, an, an interesting little thing about um, every Die Hard movie uh, was based off of a different property. It wasn't like the script wasn't written as a Die Hard movie. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean for that in a second. With, with Die Hard with a Vengeance, it was based off of a spec script called Simon Says. And, and Simon Says was about uh, – it was really – the original story was, was two cops – who were forced to play this, you know, crazy game around Los Angeles 
where, you know, there's this mad bomber and he's making the cops do these crazy, you know, crazy tasks or he's going to blow up bombs. Warner Brothers actually wanted to make that Lethal Weapon 4. Joel Silver, who was producing the Lethal Weapon films at that point, had expressed interest that this would be a great story for, you know, Riggs and Murtaugh. This would be great because the sort of the banter between the two of them trying to solve these crazy riddles would have really worked. But ultimately, when Joel Silver expressed interest in it, then 20th Century Fox swooped in and and bought the script from the the guy who wrote it. Well, once and then they said, well, this is going to be the perfect vehicle for our next Die Hard film. So as the script starts to get passed around and passed around, it lands in the hands of an FBI agent who's reading it. And he's reading the section that deals with the robbery of the Federal Reserve Bank. And he's going, how in the world does he know every little detail about the reserve unless he's been there? Right. Unless he's been there or, or somebody's selling him information. So next thing you know, the, the, the guy who wrote the script, Simon Says, that ultimately became Die Hard with a Vengeance, he gets a visit from the FBI. He gets brought in for questioning. He, it takes him days to prove that he got all of his information from a magazine article that was in the New York magazine or the New Yorker magazine you know, a couple of years before. And the FBI was able to eventually ver- verify that and he was cleared. But yeah, no, it was a crazy story. That is fantastic. And these are some of the things that I love. And what I also love about your show, because I'm gushing now, is the fact that I'm personally and no offense to anybody who does it, but. I'm always more of a fan of analysis, and maybe it's the historian in me, but I always love hearing about how the movies that I love, and maybe the movies I don't know about, how they came to be, and the inner workings behind them. Not that I'm knocking critics at all, but I feel like reviewing a movie is easy, but it's cool to know, I guess, the inner workings behind it. You know, who got together, who wrote it, the stories, and everything like that, so... But you also do it in a way that's not pretentious. And that's something that's very important for, I think, a movie podcast such as yours where, you know, you do it as a fan. And like I said, you do. You did mention a little bit like in the first Star Wars episode, obviously your experience is dealing with Phantom Menace. But again, it was done in a way of this was my personal experience. It wasn't like you're trying to rally and, you know, take up arms and carry torches and pitchforks. But you just had this very unpretentious way about your episodes. And I must commend you on that because... This is going to sound very weird, but it's not easy to do that. I really appreciate you saying that. And one of the things that has become more and more clear to me since I've been doing this show, I've been lucky enough to talk to and meet, you know, several people involved in making movies. And I've I've really tried to steer clear of becoming a quote unquote film critic because for two reasons. One, I don't think it's in my nature to tell you or to tell anyone that you're wrong if you like something. Right. You know, that that's that's not me. I mean, if people ask me my opinion, I'm certainly going to give it to them. Sure. Did I like the Star Wars prequels? Not at all. Do you like them? Okay, great. That's not, you know, that I'd rather learn more about the people behind the scenes of who actually, you know, made them and things like that. You know, and the thing is this, you know, you know, movies are art. Art is subjective, you know. Who am I? Who am I to tell you whether or not you should like something? You know, that's that's kind of kind of been the way I am. Now, I have been critical of movies in the past, and I probably will continue. But if you like something, I think that's great, and I'm gonna do I'm gonna do my best to make sure that you you know that I don't ever try to talk you out of that. 
I mean, that's just not the way I am. That's really important because it's also just very inviting. The show is like, hey, sit down, listen to me tell stories, as opposed to, I'm going to tell you why everything you love is terrible. <laughs> I mean, it's not my show. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> Well, if, if you think about it there, for the most part, the, the, the topics and the movies that I cover are pretty beloved films. You know, I'm sure there's going to be people that don't like them, but I'm not going to – it's going to take a lot for me to get into, like, bad movies. Now, to be fair, like, I did the entire Nightmare on Elm Street series, but there's a part of me deep down inside that really loves every one of those movies except for part five. I think part five is awful, but that's just me. You know, but it would take a lot for me to, to, to start picking apart movies. Like, I'm more excited to hear the story about, you know, some of these movies. And spoiler alert, I'm working on a Forrest Gump episode right now. That's what I've been doing all day today. I'm hoping to have that episode in about three days. And wait to hear the story behind this one. I mean, it's crazy. The author, the author of the book. And I won't say any more than that. I don't want to spoil it. This is sad. And I hate being this guy because I know when I hear this about other things, I kind of facepalm. But I wasn't even aware that it was a book. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Now, then, you know, here's the thing. A lot of people didn't realize that. I didn't realize that Die Hard was based on a book until a few years ago. And then I actually and then to find out that that book was out of print and extremely hard to find. The book is called Nothing Lasts Forever. And if you read it, it came out in 1979. It was written by an author by the name of Roderick Thorpe. And it is almost a scene for scene, the Die Hard movie, oh, with the exception okay. of that the name of the company has changed. Uh, the main characters uh, changed. Uh, instead of being a uh, Japanese conglomerate, it's a, it's a Texas oil company called the, the Klaxon Group, and they have a 40-story building in Los Angeles. And it's uh, Joe Leland is the name of the, uh, the, the sort of the Bruce Willis character. But it's almost a scene-for-scene story. And so I actually took me a while to get my hands on that book when I read it. I loved it. And if you listen to the Die Hard episode, I actually read a couple small passages from that book. Now, when it comes to the Forrest Gump book, I think somewhere down the road, I somewhere along the, along the road, I knew that that was based on a book. Um, and I recently checked it out of the library. And I will not be able to read that. I will not be able to read a passage from that on my podcast without giving some type of extreme warning, because the language that Forrest uses in that book, like I'm, I've heard a lot in my life, but it's shocking the way he talks. <laughs> like, the, <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny to me. But but no, but I'm I remember because I'm, I'm I'm picking up the book and the the book is told through first person narration. It's Forrest okay. telling his story, so it's him sort of explaining everything. And every other word out of his mouth is fuck. And I'm telling you. <laughs> really? I can't imagine that. I'm telling you. And those are the tamer words that he uses. Okay. Like I am, I was, I was shocked at what I was reading. I was like, I, 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 I'm telling you, pick up the book, read a couple chapters. Your, your, your jaw is going to be on the floor. Oh, now so, I actually think I want to see a recut of the movie, but doing the uh, this version that you're hearing because I feel like Tom Hanks doing that may be one of like the greatest cinematic treasures ever. Well, that would definitely be like a hard R-rated film, and I, I was I was thinking to myself, and as I read the book and I read the whole thing, and they are vastly different. From the book and the movie, I mean, there are a couple things in the book. He goes to the University of Alabama, and in the movie, he goes to the University of Alabama. But in the book, he becomes an astronaut. He goes up in space, like all kinds of crazy stuff goes on. 
And I'm going to touch on some of that on the next episode, but I'm really excited to get this one going because I was just shocked at what I read. I couldn't believe what I was reading, and I'm excited to share it with everyone. I uh, can't wait to uh, check that out, and hopefully everybody else is as well, because if you're not listening to this podcast, you're doing yourself a disservice because it's a lot of fun. And even if you're not like a huge movie fan, just enough just to just to hear the stories behind it. I, I think it's worth checking out, even if you're not necessarily aware of the movies. And maybe it also help you give it better appreciation. But um, we've been talking about the podcast so much, we probably should tell everybody, uh, where can they find it online? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so a number of different places I've got the podcast. Um, I've got the, the show on iTunes, on Stitcher, on TuneIn. All you have to do is just search How Is This Movie? Um, I keep a catalog of my older episodes on a website, howisthismovie.net. Uh, there's even some exclusive episodes on there that are not available on the mainstream. If you want to listen to my three-part Eddie Murphy retrospective, that's only available on my website right now. So that one's that's howisthismovie.net. Uh, if you want to follow me on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash movie. And my Twitter handle is – well, I have two Twitter pages. I've got one for the, the – the show, which is at How Is This Movie, and then I've got my personal Twitter, which is uh, at Dana H-I-T-M. And if you want to email me, it's H-I-T-M-Podcast at gmail.com. Great. Dana, this has been so much fun, and it's like I feel like I barely even touched on half the stuff I wanted to talk about, but that just means you're just going to have to come on. Oh, absolutely. I was looking at the clock going, we've been talking for an hour and ten minutes? It doesn't even see, It doesn't even seem like that. Well, I don't like to hold my guests hostage, but, you know, I guess we should probably wrap it up. But thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. That'll do it for this episode of Adrian Has Issues, and we'll see you next issue. 